if every single person just started with the one thing that they were passionate about that they can see in their field that they could do imagine how much we'd be able to change so quickly in society like wouldn't it be incredible I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Allyship has been on everyone's lips this year, and the conversation is incredibly overdue. But what does it mean to be an ally? How do we move beyond tokenism to a place of genuine allyship? What comes next? What kind of self-examination is required what are the barriers in place and how do we break them down? To unpack these big questions, I invited Sarah Sheridan onto the podcast. Sarah is the non-Indigenous co-founder in an Aboriginal-owned and led business, Clothing the Gap. Sarah's background is in health promotion and community engagement, and she has a long history of working alongside the Victorian Aboriginal community using a strengths-based approach. Find out more at www.clothingthegap.com.au. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Sarah. Hello, Lee. Thank you for having me. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? For me, doing good means leaving a space or a situation or, you know, one day hopefully the world in a better position than when I first entered into it. So for me, it's about thinking about what those what those things are that I can do personally and individually that, that I can change, but also like systematically what I can contribute to. Have you always felt like that or has that been something that's kind of evolved over time for you? No, I think it's definitely something that's evolved for me. I think my journey to understanding what good is and what good means and what good can look like across different spaces has definitely grown. I think when I was younger, I had a very simplistic idea of of what doing good meant and that it was a very one or the other scenario. It was either good or it was bad. But as an adult that has encountered lots of different good, in inverted commas, and and not good in inverted situations, um, especially in the process of, you know, again, I say in, in finger talking marks, doing good, it's a spectrum and a sliding scale that continuously changes. Yeah, absolutely. Do you see doing good as something that we should express in our daily lives, no matter what it is that we're doing? Or do you kind of see it as something to be, I guess, siloed off like, oh, I go to work and I do good in that space? Yeah, I personally think that doing good and choosing to reflect about the way that you interact in the world and what you contribute to or what you ignore is something that you can weave into your everyday life and it not be siloed off onto its own little today on Tuesdays between three and four, I do good. (laughs) Wouldn't, Wouldn't that be convenient? No, I genuinely think that if we're going to be meaningful and genuine, I guess, about the good that we want to see or the change that we want to make in the world, then it's about integrating that into every facet of what we do and, and our being rather than choosing to do it when it suits us. And I think sometimes the situations that call us to do the right thing the most are when it's completely inconvenient. And that's when I think it is the defining factor sometimes between whether or not it's something that you do performatively because people expect it of you or whether it's it's something that you do because it's inherently connected to, to who you are as a person and, and what you want to see changed. 
So I want to jump right in here. You are a non-Indigenous co-founder of an Indigenous organisation. There's obviously some tensions in there to navigate, both, I imagine, at a personal level for you, but also more widely in the sector and the community. There certainly are some tensions there. And and as you've picked up on, not just externally, but also internally for myself. And I think um, this is something that I've I've had to work through quite a lot, especially over the last 18 months or so. But again, over the last 10 years, I've really had to spend a lot of time self-reflecting around my role in society and, and what that looks like. And as somebody who sees themselves as a good person, what that means is when you stop seeing yourself as a good person and you start thinking about whether or not the actions that you take every single day contribute to anti-racist work, then I think you start to ask yourself some some really big questions that I think have helped guide me throughout the last five or six years especially. So in the lead up to co-founding Spark Health and and then on to co-founding Clothing the Gap with Laura, I worked for a number of years at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. I had the absolute pleasure and the privilege of being part of the health promotion team there, which is where I actually met Laura. And it was my time that led me to bars in in volunteering within some some local Aboriginal organisations and also at a, a regional Aboriginal medical service up in Horsham called Goolam Goolam that I'm still really connected to, you know, 10 years later, that really shaped my path in understanding I think mostly understanding the the health and wellbeing and I guess the the developmental spaces that I wanted to be involved in as a young person, but also what my role as a non-Indigenous person in this work is. So for me, it was really getting clear about what it means to be in this together versus in it to help. And a quote that I always come back to is Lilla Watson. And it's if you're if you've come here to help, it essentially says if you've come here to help, then I don't need your help. But if you've come because your liberation is tied up in mine, then let's work together. And I think, um, you know, for me, my humanity and I guess the the liberties that I'm that I have access to as a you know as a middle class white woman in Australia, those are, are things that I want to see everybody have access to and, and and more. And I can't sit in that without ensuring that I'm not only pushing that ladder further, but also helping others up behind me as well and, and keeping that door open for, for more people to step into more spaces. When we started Spark Health, we were running health and wellbeing programs in community, in Aboriginal communities in um, across regional Victoria and one of the things that we had always done was so if you came to four out of six sessions you earned yourself a limited edition piece of merchandise that was designed by Laura who's a good Jamara woman and the this piece of merchandise it really you know centered around cultural connections and cultural values and reinforcing that cultural identity and being part of a team essentially so it really connected people to this shared experience that they'd had together and then people just really loved the merch that that was being created and hilariously we actually started designing merch and releasing it under a label under Spark Health called Spark Merch. And then after a little while, we um, realised that it, that was just really confusing and, and clothing the gap, the name came out one day in conversation with somebody in that if you buy the T-shirt, you're helping to close the gap and then clothing the gap became a thing. And then since then, clothing the gap, I think, just became a really tangible thing that people could grab onto in terms of buying a piece of merch that stood 
for much more than just the the cotton that holds the piece of you know t-shirt together it's it's values it's conversations it's a statement that says what where you stand on something it is a signal to you know to those around you of where your values lie essentially and it lets you continue to have those conversations with more people to spread spread those messages. So then Clothing the Gap, I just get, I guess just continued to grow and we were able to use our platform to to spark conversations and campaign for things like Free the Flag. And you know, we have lots of conversations around change the date and I guess just that that value and that representation of Aboriginal people and, and communities um, in Australia. So as one of the I guess one of the fastest growing Aboriginal owned and led brands in Australia. Being a, a non-Indigenous co-founder in that has been incredibly challenging and a journey that I have spent a lot of time continuously reflecting on what my role is here. What am I doing? How can I be of most benefit? What are my skill sets that I can contribute to and share? And what are the bits that aren't actually my bits to have anything to do with or to completely take a back seat on and just to help in the background, even though it might be my skill set that's the thing that's needed, but not necessarily the person that's needed. So how do you best contribute and share, you know, with, with continuously being aware of the space that you take up and who's in the seat, I guess, and who's not in the seat. So for me, being a non-Indigenous co-founder in Aboriginal business, it means that Aboriginal leadership is, is paramount. So for me, I can't do what I do without Laura and Laura's direction and leadership and, and vision for the brand and, and the work is incredibly important. For me internally, for, for especially for this year, as somebody who absolutely loves public speaking and is very used to doing all of that sort of thing, it's it's been a big year of getting my ego out of the way. And that's not always easy. I'm a giant personality and, and COVID, you know, being an extrovert has been incredibly tough as it is, let alone going through a ginormous, I guess, growth phase at, with a platform and taking a complete backseat on that and I'm completely okay with it now <laughs> you know it takes that takes a lot of internal work to get okay with that well and I imagine it's a constant process of of checking in all the time and and kind of asking yourself where am I at is am I still in that place of of contentment with where I've landed or you know is something coming up is my ego coming up yeah absolutely so checking checking myself not just, you know, every couple of days, but like continuously throughout the day sometimes is, is really important. I often say to people who are new to this space or looking for ways that they want to be involved or, or you know, or they want to do more and that you, it has to start with yourself, you know, as a, as a non-Aboriginal person, the relearning and the unlearning and the listening is crucial. If we don't start there and start really doing some of that investigation work for ourselves of figuring out what we do know, what we don't know, what we know that isn't actually that accurate because of the education experiences that we've been through or the things that we've chosen to not engage in as well. Like once you see things, you start to, you know, you really do see them and you see them with clear eyes. But if you don't look for them and you choose to not look for them or you choose to turn away, then, then you'll never see them. What are some of the biggest kind of struggles that you've had or, or lessons that you've learned along the way? Yeah, so for me, I think one of the things that 
throughout COVID, I had to get really clear on was we went online with all of our programs really, really quickly for me as in, in terms of I do a lot of the navigating of the, the program delivery work in just sort of like the logistical pieces of making it all kind of happen. For us, all of our programs and all of our initiatives and, and projects are Aboriginal designed, led and delivered, which is how it should be. And for me, it was getting really clear about if I wasn't okay, I guess, being the person who was being filmed and it being streamed out online, why am I okay with it in person? As soon as we went online, I was like, I shouldn't be the person who streams out and does all of the online things and and does all of that. It's really important for me to take a back seat and this be somebody else's opportunity to step up and step into in step into this role. I think it was the best choice I've ever made in terms of seeing the growth in some of our other members of our team in being able to for them to to do all of that work. And when I say all of that work by themselves, I am 110% still there. I'm still the one working through the program plan with them and and doing all of that, that pre-work, but in terms of being the person who's standing up and delivering the information and doing all of that bit. It's not me anymore, which is fantastic. It means that we've been able to grow enough to A, to be able to have more people in the team to do all of that work, but it also means that I'm 100% able to step back and step away from that. And yeah, open the door up for other people. I guess is that the ultimate goal that you're not needed in the organisation at all? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, it, and not just in the organisation, but in the problem. The wider like, movement, yeah, yeah a response, yeah. For sure. I think if we're sitting in a in a challenge and just hoping that the challenge continues to perpetuate so that we have a, a thing to do, then that's a serious issue um, for me. It's, it's a massive issue. I think we should always be working to do ourselves out of a job in this space every single day. So for, for me, it's about continuing to adapt and grow because there is always more to be done um, and there's always more that, that can be done and there's new solutions and initiatives that can be tried all the time so for us I feel like that's always the key is looking for yeah essentially one day hopefully how we do ourselves completely out of a job is there anything major that you do differently in your time thinking about our conversation this afternoon I've I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about what the difference is between ensuring that you're checking in with yourself ensuring that you're checking your ego ensuring that you're doing an enormous amount of self-work and then where does that line sort of sit of now I'm actually just spending an enormous amount of time focusing on myself and I'm not actually doing any of the action pieces alongside of that? And I'm sure it's exhausting too. Like it takes a lot of energy. It does. It really, it genuinely really, really does. And I think for me, probably in the last, in the last little while, I think ensuring that looking back, not necessarily that I would have done it differently, but I think if I had have known that little bit of information just for myself, you know, eight months ago, thinking about the intensity of the learnings and, the, and the, I guess because of the rate of the growth of, of clothing the gap as well for all of us, not just in terms of my role as a non-Indigenous person in a, in a growing Aboriginal platform, but also just the rate of growth that we've experienced has been phenomenal. So my, my operations brain is exhausted. My anti-racist brain is <laughs> continuously firing and my personal development and, and self-reflection brain is 
continuously on. So I think if I could do anything differently, it would be to give myself a little bit of a little bit more space and time earlier to let myself sort of work through some things and then to just nail them and knock them on the head and say, right, you're done working through that bit now. You've you've made your decision about X, Y, and Z. Just get on with the work and get in and get it done. Do you think you're extra hard on yourself because of your role, because of that position of being a non-Indigenous woman in an Aboriginal-led organisation? Absolutely. I'm incredibly critical of myself because I know for a fact that if I'm not incredibly critical of myself, somebody else will be. I would rather be the one that's going to be incredibly critical of myself and second guess and judge every single thing that I'm about to do and say because I know that because of the historical injustices and and not just historical, the present day injustices that, that happen and the sentiment towards non-Indigenous people that have come into especially Aboriginal businesses and taken advantage of them and manipulated people and just with enormous dollar signs in their eyes. And that's been the complete motivating factor. I know sadly that there are far too many of those people that operate in this in this Aboriginal business space. And, you know, there's a term called black cladding where it looks and feels like an Aboriginal business, but it's actually run and profited entirely by um, non-Indigenous people, non-Indigenous, you know, business people. And I've never been so happy to say that I couldn't be any further from that if I tried. In terms of the work, it's actually completely impact-focused, 110%. We, We have always, we started with the purpose of adding years to Aboriginal people's lives and that has not changed. It's just that now the vehicle has changed in that we're on the way to be able to be one day self-sufficient in the funding model and not have to rely on traditional funding from the government to be able to do the work that Aboriginal communities ask of us and that Aboriginal people design and deliver alongside Aboriginal communities. So I think when you know we think about the self-determination and you know terms like self-determination and community control, looking at how we can actually be completely separate from government within that is really exciting. When I say we, I'm talking about closing the gap. How do you cope with the inevitable pushback from some parts of the community about your role because of past experiences that they've had with other people? Yeah, I think it's really important to be understanding that it's coming from a really genuine place of concern and that they have had a really genuine reason to be completely wary of, of people coming into the space. I would be too. For me, it's about being genuine and consistent I've never stepped into a space with the aim of not being there for a really long time. For me, relationships are incredibly important and that for me, the intention of of building really strong and meaningful relationships with the people, not just the people that I work with, but the communities that I have the privilege of working alongside in the process is completely integral. I think once people, you know, for people that don't know me, once they once they get to know me, they understand that the intention and the purpose of of the impact piece working underneath Aboriginal leadership is is key. So the term allyship is is kind of on everyone's lips at the moment and not a moment too soon, you know, in some yeah. respects. <laughs> and I know that many people experience a tension internally themselves between wanting to be an ally, wanting to do something, but not really understanding what they can and can't do 
as an ally. And then it becomes that kind of classic paralysis situation where they just do nothing. And I know you guys at Clothing the Gap have addressed this to some extent with your products by clearly marking items with a tag that says mob only or ally friendly. But I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper into this concept of allyship. You also say on the Clothing the Gap website, wearing Aboriginal designs is not dismantling a system that oppresses Indigenous people. Wearing t-shirts is a great starting point, but the individual needs to learn and do more. I followed some threads through your website and I read Summer Mae Finlay's article on allyship, where she says that non-Indigenous people often fall into one of three groups those that are tokenistic, those who are allies, and those who are accomplices in engaging with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues. It seems to me that it's quite a journey for many people and they probably move through and sometimes back and forward between those groups at different times. Absolutely. What's your journey been? How have you navigated that journey? As I mentioned a little bit earlier, in terms of it's, it is a bit of a sliding scale. You don't always sit in the accomplice space. You don't always sit in the tokenistic space and you, and you don't always nail it. But I think the intention pieces is, is really important. If you step into a space and you have the right intentions and you genuinely do want to do more, um, that's the first bit. And then, as I mentioned before, then starting that that learning process. But for me, I think it's understanding that there's a really big difference between wanting to work alongside somebody, working alongside the Aboriginal community to dismantle systems of oppression. And there's a really big difference between giving your voice to it or backing it or being like, oh, that's something I care about. I care about Remembrance Day too and, you know, I care about a lot of stuff. They're not necessarily causes or or issues that I, like, absolutely back 110% and essentially, you know, giving my entire life's work and energy into seeing a difference in. I think the, the difference between engaging in any racist work or, be, or being a, an accomplice in dismantling systems of oppression is that it's something that you can integrate into your absolute everyday being. It's not something that is a, you know, Tuesday from three till four, I go to book club where I'm, you know, anti-racist. For me, it's been about understanding what your role is in that and what you what you can do. I think it's really easy to become paralysed in it's so big and there's so much to do, but there's always somewhere that we can start. And from there, you'll see where your next steps are of what your specific journey within that is. You know, if you're somebody who is a, let's just say a a lawyer, your role in working, like specifically working or, you know, giving your experience and expertise in in anti-racist practice is, is going to probably be a little bit different to somebody who's a horticulturalist. Looking for your, what your area of expertise and what your passion is within that and then following up with other people who are doing that under an Aboriginal-led campaign or solution is probably my best piece of advice. But, you know, alongside with starting that that self-learning journey and then making connections and building relationships and then adding your expertise and experience to a wider, a wider collective of, of people working towards something. 
it's really easy to get paralysed in it when you see it as being so ginormously big. If every single person just started with the one thing that they were passionate about that they can see in their field that they could do, imagine how much we'd be able to change so quickly in society. Like, wouldn't it be incredible? I love this. And I mean, I spend a lot of time talking about exactly this. And one of the applications of this is talking to people that want to go and volunteer overseas. Yeah. And they might be a lawyer and have really wonderful and useful skills, but they go and build a a hut. A toilet. Yeah, or a toilet. (laughs) Like why? You're not a plumber. No, and, and you wouldn't be able to do that here. You can't go and build a toilet if you're not a plumber. No, don't give communities that need expertise and often already have that expertise within their own community. I also just think like for my journey in terms of, you know, removing or starting to remove that white saviour lens, because essentially that's what it is of being, well, I'm a lawyer, but I don't know how to build bricks anywhere in the world. Just give me two weeks of volunteerism. But when I first, you know, probably when I was in my, you know, early high school years, I probably thought that by now I'd be working with an international aid organisation somewhere around the world, you know, doing wonderful things internationally. And when I was working at Gulam Gulam in Horsham in my first year of university doing a summer internship, I had this complete revelation of understanding that I had it all wrong, like completely all wrong. Not only is there an enormous amount of work to do at home, in terms of social injustice and ensuring that there's equal access to, to opportunities and health and wellbeing and all of, you know, all of those things when we're talking about holistic health. But that the model that I'd been taught or that I'd engaged with was so far from, from what I obviously genuinely knew would make a difference or that the, the model that is most effective, and that's for me, is community control in that, Aboriginal people hold the solutions and the knowledge and the power to make changes and to to lead and and to do exactly what it is that their community needs to shift the dial on what's happening in Australia. And that doesn't mean that all of the work's left up to Aboriginal communities to do that by themselves. That means that they're the ones that set the direction and outline the process of of what this is going to look like. And then it's up to everybody to back that and to work alongside them to collectively achieve that together. I think the the key word in in Lilla Watson's quote that I shared earlier is, is actually the word work. It's not sit and have cuppers. It's not talk about it. It's work. It's the action piece. It's, it's hard. When you think about work, hard work is hard work. It doesn't actually ever end. It's ongoing and it's something that we all have to do together. If you think about you know, somebody who was an accomplice in a robbery. They really got stuck in there and they were absolutely in it together and they were just as involved in the other person and there was no separating the two. When you think about an accomplice in that sense and then you think about applying it to social change, that's how in it and that's how in the thick of it that I want to be. Like That's a level of commitment and also the level of conviction I think that we should all have to social change. Absolutely sliding scale and, and doesn't mean that you always nail it, but I think the intention and ensuring that 
you're being led by your gut on that in that if it feels uncomfortable, check in on why that is and and what's going on. And that's hard for people. It's hard to self-reflect and realize that perhaps your motivations aren't as altruistic as you might imagine them to be. And that there is that element of white saviorism coming in and privilege and power and all of these things that you might not have even thought about and, and, you know, that, that can be really tough. And I know a lot of people do kind of tap out at that point because it's too hard. It is, absolutely. And I have a lot of conversations with other non-Indigenous folk who are sort of semi-involved in this work or they're like, oh, you know, like sometimes I just think it's just all a bit too hard and maybe I should just go and do something else. I'm like, that is the biggest cop out I've ever heard in my life. Don't, like this is the choice now. You've you've hit the point where you've realised what you need to continue to do. You have to choose to keep going. Well, and perhaps that's the that's the moment of moving from tokenism to allyship, right? Like that's that's a recognition that if I'm really going to be an ally, I have to move beyond doing these small tokenistic things that actually are about just being seen and actually genuinely, as you say, put in the work. A hundred percent. And I think when you can realise the difference between what you want to do performatively when people are watching and what you're willing to do when absolutely nobody's watching and when nobody knows that you're the person that's done it and when nobody knows that you're the person that's done the 110-hour week but not seen anywhere, then that's when you know that, you know, not that I'm saying that anybody should go and work 110 hours, <laughs> don't, don't do it, it's not good for you. That's when you, you really know that you've moved past that. I think when we're thinking about doing good, I think the other thing that really brings people unstuck is this binary notion of it's either good or it's bad. And I think once I was able to really completely remove that lens and towards the start of the year I worked through me and white supremacy and it was really interesting I think for me it was able to just put some some language and some words around things that I'd been experiencing for a really long time like a really really long time don't even get me started on white exceptionalism um (laughs) hello ego and I think for me, once, you know, moving through that notion of that that binary concept of it's either good or it's bad or you either you either did it right or you did it wrong really helped me to remove some of that paralysis around some of those really big things of it's not necessarily that you've done it wrong or that you've done it right. It's that there's there's always something that you could have done a little bit differently or there's you could have done more or and it just it helps to move through that stuck in concrete feeling of it's just so big and I really don't want to bug this up because I care so much about it and I think so many people who want to do better in this space care so 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 much about it that they genuinely don't want to harm the movement or they don't want to harm the cause that they don't want to be that person that ruins it and I think just yeah getting okay with little by little and and trusting your gut and surrounding yourself with people that you trust to to give you the honest feedback of now nah, that that wasn't actually what we needed or, or wasn't actually okay at all or that you could have we actually needed you to do more then is really important just touching on this kind of the anti-racism work i've been having a few conversations with other non-indigenous people about what it means to be anti-racist and whether saying 
well, I'm not racist. Mm, it's not enough. enough. It's not enough. And But is there such a thing as not racist? Is it just either anti-racist or racist? And I think this is this concept of this binary notion of good and bad. You're not either racist or not racist. You can choose to be anti-racist. And that doesn't mean that every single time somebody says a, a microaggression or every time that there's an incident that you should step into, it doesn't mean that, you know, does being not racist mean that you never drop the ball or you never let something slip because you're exhausted or you never ever like or does being anti-racist mean that you commit to doing the absolute best that you can do in that time and space do you know what I mean like I think whereas you know that that difference between being whereas being racist is for me there's just the the chasm between racist and not racist is it the divide is just so huge well, I mean, inaction is essentially the same as, as racism. You're exactly. not speaking up, you're not stepping in, then you are tolerating and perpetuating these ideas. Absolutely. And then choosing to be anti-racist in that is that that continuum in that anti-racist feels like there's so much more action and ongoing requirement of it than and not racist is not a stamp that you get on your passport and now you're, congratulations, you're not racist. You can do whatever you want and say whatever you want, but you're not racist. You know, you can say whatever you want after the I'm not racist, but, um, and it, it doesn't matter, <laughs> like <laughs> the but, right? So I think, yeah, absolutely. I think when people are genuinely thinking about how do I be an ally in this space, I think to be an ally is to choose to commit to be anti-racist when you wake up and get out of bed every single morning. Sarah, what's the most rewarding part of your work? What do you enjoy the most about what you do? I absolutely love that I'm able to offer my my skills and passions to a independent vehicle that is finding in really innovative and unique solutions to some of the biggest problems that we face, I believe, in Australia in in racism. For me, it's about being able to create opportunities alongside an incredible team for people to celebrate and acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and history in this country. As um, as a non-Aboriginal person, it baffles me that we do not shout from the rooftops how incredible and how diverse and the amazing and the the knowledge and the 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 depth and the diversity of, of Indigenous culture in this country is so under-celebrated. That is exactly why I do what I do in that, for me, I feel like there are so many people who miss out on the opportunity, or well, not the opportunity because they have the opportunity, they miss out on celebrating Aboriginal culture and history and, and the incredible things that that opens opens to you and the experiences that that I've had the complete privilege of being a part of because of that and I want to see more people experience that I'm really proud of the way that clothing the gap gives more non-indigenous people the opportunity to wear their values on their tea essentially and saying that I'm actually super proud of Aboriginal culture in this country conversely what do you find most challenging about your day-to-day most challenging about my day-to-day at the moment is navigating how we best set up systems to adapt to a rapidly growing demand. You know, we're in, in the middle of relocating our offices. Everything is just, it is like quicksand at the moment in terms of like the shifting sands of trying to keep up with what's happening and something, you know, a plan that you put in place 
Three months ago is obsolete really quickly, which, you know, from an operational point of view, which is what I look after in terms of HR and, you know, all the actual just structural pieces of of business that really needs to happen in the background that nobody really often gives two cahoots about or thinks about when they think about what it requires to, to run a business or to have a brand or a label or a platform and all of these massive things. It changes really quickly when with the community support that we've received, it's just been incredible and we are so, so grateful for every single person that's backed us over the last 18 months. And I guess one thing that most people probably don't know is that Clothing the Gap only became a, um, only was big enough to become a, a, a separate enterprise from Spark in March this year, in March 2020. Wow. I know. Like most people don't realise that that's how, that's how new we actually are. Yeah. That's the challenge is it's been, the, the growth has been quick. Who is somebody that's been a, a, an influence on you in your journey around doing good? It would be completely amiss of me not to to say Laura. When I met Laura, I was in my last year of university and the journey that Laura and I have been on together is incredibly unique. When we talk about genuine partnerships and working together and, and in you know, our skill sets complement each other enormously. We're a fantastic team. Somebody once said to me long, long, long time ago now, when we were first sort of working through starting out our first business together, don't get into business with anybody that you wouldn't marry in that like the levels of trust and the ability to communicate and being on the same page about the important things. You know, I'm not married, but I presume they're important things. Um <laughs> You know, and and with Laura, you know, she has walked alongside me and backed me to be able to operate in spaces where without her, I wouldn't be able to do what I do either. So, yeah, Laura's guidance in my journey has been phenomenal. Now for a philosophical question, what do you think is the greatest social challenge of our time? Something that future generations are going to look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? Yeah, I honestly think that if we don't change the date around the 26th of January very soon, we, you know, we talk about symbolism a lot and symbolism versus tokenistic symbolism is very different. Genuine symbolism says to a group of people, I care about you, I hear what you're saying and you're important and you're valued. And for wider Australia to continue to hold Australia Day on the 26th of January is a statement that says to a really important and large portion of the Australian population that we don't care about you. We don't think that what you have experienced or what you say is important. We don't value your past experiences. And I really do believe that if the date isn't changed really soon, then I think future generations are going to look back on this and go, I don't know why they didn't just change it. Yeah, like, it's, it's so, so simple. simple. Yeah. <laughs> like it is so simple. And I think this it's the simplicity of it that is going to see our current leaders judge so harshly on the inaction around this as well. It's not going to harm anybody to change it. It's not it. the date to celebrate. It is just not the date to celebrate. Any other date? not the 26th of January. And when I say any other date, you know, there's obviously others. And I think, you know, as I said before, the under-celebration and the undervaluing of of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and history in this country, the fact that Aboriginal culture and history isn't taught in schools properly, the bit where it's a, it's a almost like a choose-your-own-adventure, whether or not you decide to go down the path of wanting to discover more about whose country you're on and the communities on around you and the culture and the history that 
is so incredibly rich and diverse and very much still alive and living, not just, you know, was, is. And, you know, I think that's completely reiterated in this year's NAIDOC theme in always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It's not a past thing. It's a now, today and tomorrow thing. I really do think that we'll be very, we'll be judged very harshly on that too. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Probably the one thing that that sums it up is choose to be anti-racist. It doesn't have to be this ginormous, momentous thing. It's it's the choice every single day to choose to be anti-racist that will be the thing that that creates social change. Where's your favourite place on earth? Right now, coming out of COVID, it's my family farm up in north central Victoria. Yeah, on Watcher Ballot Country. That's a whole other story for another day, but being a fifth generation Irish settler on Watcher Ballot Country, it's, you know, it's been reconciling with that and learning more about my family's journey to be the people that hold that land and, and what that's looked like. And, you know, being a, a settler on, on stolen land, it's, yeah. It's been a big, big reconciliation journey, but that's a that's a whole nother podcast whole nother for another episode. day, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> what book are you reading at the moment? If you have time to read books, that is. I'm reading quite a few books at the moment, actually. I'm reading a book about the IRA called Say Nothing about Dolores Price being the first woman to be allowed to join the IRA. Um, What else am I reading? Just finished reading Clarissa Ward's On All Front. She's a foreign correspondent, has been, you know, in some incredible places all around the world reporting and sharing the stories of, you know, whether it's war or disaster into our TV screens right across the world. She's been, yeah, that that was really good. And then I'm also reading making time to read a bit more poetry at the moment and I'm really enjoying the work of Curly Saunders who's a a Gunai woman and her collection of poems Kindred um, sits on my bedside table and it's a really nice piece of my day where I actually slow down for two seconds and read something that yeah brings me back down to earth for a second. Sarah, it has been wonderful to have you on the podcast and I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think it's so important to have conversations like this and to keep having them over and over and over again. I want to thank you for your honesty and your openness in sharing your journey and that ongoing journey that you're on. I think it's it's going to be really useful for people to understand what it means to truly work side by side in this space. Thanks, Lee, for the opportunity to yeah share the bits that I guess that don't always get talked about so much, but are the bits that have to happen every day. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jaja Wurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to The Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? The Good Problem Podcast is a project of The Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. 
You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share. 